Acts chapter 12. Uh, We're going to be in Acts chapter 12. It's been our habit now. Uh, We took a little bit of time off for Easter, but it's been our habit to to be working along uh, through the book of Acts. So let's uh, read Acts chapter 12. We'll start in in verse 1. Listen to the word of God. At that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased uh, the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the doors, uh, the door were keeping, uh, were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and he, uh, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate uh, leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish, pe- from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the door, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him, he did not find him. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And he came, uh, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, 
because he did not give the God the glory. Um, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, speak to us from your word, uh, that you would guide us and direct us, that you would uh, have instruction and comfort and building up uh, of our body through this word today. Uh, We just pray that you would give me the words to say, that they would be clear. Uh, In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever met someone um, that was incredibly prideful? That was incredibly arrogant. And maybe you, even in a moment of weakness, said to yourself, I would just love to pop them in their face. Just wipe that smirk off their mouth. Maybe it was someone who was an unbeliever who was arrogant. And they were arrogantly confident that God did not exist or that they didn't need God. And you were trying to to talk to them about Jesus. In those situations, you don't need to fear because God is always in charge. God is always in control. And this is why we need to be people who are humble rather than people who are prideful. I think one of the great biblical examples of someone who learned this was Nebuchadnezzar. You remember Nebuchadnezzar from the book of Daniel. And you may remember uh, the occasion where he was walking around on, on the roof of his palace in Babylon. And Babylon was a massive city at that point. It was It was considered impregnable, unable to be destroyed. Its walls were so massive you could drive several chariots uh, across uh, around the top of them. And the scriptures say in Daniel chapter 4, at the end of the twelfth month, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking around the roof of the palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. You can think there, that that is almost God-like language to describe yourself as having glory and, and majesty. And what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? He is struck that very moment with insanity for seven years. And Scripture says that he, he's walking around in the field. He's down on all fours and he's eating grass like a cow. And his, his, his hair becomes uh, mangy. If you've ever seen like a, a wild dog come in and it has fleas and ticks and mange and ugly shag and it smells. This is, this is what Nebuchadnezzar became in his insanity because he was prideful and he exalted himself. It's fascinating That at the end of this, when Nebuchadnezzar comes out of it, listen to what he says about God. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted uh, my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the power and the majesty of God far more than many of us do today in our own lives. He says, none can stay God's hand. You can't hold God's hand back. You can't stop it. When God wants to accomplish something, He will see that it is accomplished. He says that the Lord does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. You can't come before God and say, why are you doing this? What's wrong? You can't question Him as as one might question someone you're an equal with or as a boss uh, might question someone who works for Him. Now, as a Christian, we we have the privilege of knowing God and we can ask Him these things in prayer uh, with a humble spirit, but we can't question Him with an air of authority that He owes us an answer. Our main point this morning as we look through this passage in Acts is simply that God's plans cannot be thwarted. And I want you to see as we go through this passage the plans of God. The plan that God has for James. The plan that God has for Peter. And then the plan that God has for Herod for his arrogant rebellion. The plans of God are never thwarted. Things do not catch God off guard. He is not surprised. Someone doesn't act and stop God from accomplishing His purpose. The plans of God are never thwarted. So first this morning, God's plans sometimes allow the righteous to suffer. It is sometimes God's plan that good Christians, faithful Christians, Christians who are walking with the Lord are allowed in the plans and purposes of God to suffer and even lose their life. You might think here of James. You might also think of missionaries who became martyrs. You might think of um, Jim Elliott, who landed his plane amongst the Indians in South Africa and was struck down and murdered. And God used that. And, And years later, some of the very people that threw those spears became saved. And in that moment, we might look and we say, why would God allow a faithful missionary to die? It was part of God's plans. And God's plans are not thwarted. So Herod here takes up persecuting the church. Look at verse 1. And at that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on him, on some who belonged to the church. This is Herod Agrippa. Uh, there are a number of Herods mentioned in the Bible. There is the Herod that is the, the king when Jesus is born and tries to, to kill Jesus and kills the children in Bethlehem. That's Herod the Great. Uh, that would have been the grandfather of this Herod. Then there is Herod Antipas, who was the Herod who killed John the Baptist and who was the Herod that that questioned Jesus and had that exchange with Jesus and and Pilate was involved in sending Jesus to Herod as well uh, there. That would have been this Herod's father. Uh, This is Herod Agrippa and he reigns from from A.D. 41 uh, to A.D. 44. Uh, So we're still in the very early years of of the church. Uh, It's maybe about 10 years since Jesus Uh, has died and ascended into heaven. Notice verse 2. Herod kills James, the brother of John. says he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, this persecution, uh, even this horrific murder, should not surprise us. 
Uh, it should not catch us off guard. In fact, Jesus had warned uh, that these kinds of things would happen. He said, if they hated me, they will also hate you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. And guess what? They didn't keep Jesus' word. It was the same rebellious hearts and the same types of people. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, brother will deliver over brother, uh, over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them uh, put to death, and you will be hated for all of, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. He says elsewhere in Scripture that we're going to have to take up our cross and, and follow Him. The normal state of the church throughout history has, to been, has been to be a church facing persecution. Our time where we live right now, the freedoms that we have in America really are an anomaly when you think about the scope of the whole church. There are people worshiping today around the world in secret. There are people in communist countries. There are people in Islamic countries. And they are believers. And they risk their very lives just by gathering in secret with a body of believers. I remember hearing stories uh, from the Cold War and some of the missionaries. And I remember one in particular where uh, a church had only one Bible. And they would tear that Bible out very carefully. They would tear the pages out and you would get a section for a period of time and you would pass it around. So imagine if if this Bible here was the only one that we had and we had to divide it up between all of you here today uh, and you all better be back next week because we'd have to switch pages around. But but some of you might get the book of Romans for the week. Some of you might get the book of Isaiah or Ezekiel. Some of you might get the book of Revelation. And you just think of the kind of persecution that is where you're fearing for your life and you can't even own your own Bible because, because it is such a crackdown. It should not surprise us that James is put to death. Yes, it's a sad situation. Yes, it's, it's uh, horrific whenever someone is killed in this way or dies uh, for the Christian faith. But by the same token, it should not surprise us. There was a guy by the name of Tertullian, one of the guys in the early church around the 300s, and he said that, that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. That as people were being put to death, it was the very means by which God used to, to spread the gospel. And there are testimonies, and there, there are testimonies even to today, when sometimes when people witness uh, a Christian willing to be put to death for their faith, they say, wow. There must be something to this. And the Lord uses that to, to bring them to salvation. We should not be surprised when these happen. So Herod is going on here and he's going he's to seize Peter and he's intent on killing Peter. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him and intended after the Passover to bring him out uh, of the peop- out to the people. And when it says there, by the way, bring him out to the people, uh, it means bring him out to put him to death. This is not, oh, we're just going to have a party and we'll bring him out. No, we are going to bring him out and have a public execution here is the idea. Uh, Peter has 
four squads of soldiers guarding him. Some of those of you who used to be in the military, you're probably going to want to know how many were in a squad. Uh, in this context, there were four guys per squad. So we had 16 men uh, guarding him. And, and, and most people think, uh, some of the commentaries I looked at, they said probably because there were four watches in the night. You'd watch for about three hours and then you'd rotate. So there were at least four guys awake on guard duty at all times uh, through the night. So this is... You know, this is a pretty heavy guard uh, for one man. But I want you to notice, and I want to just, as you think about here what happens to Peter and what happens to, uh, to James, uh, I want you to notice that God has different plans for each of his disciples. And, and I want you to know, and, and sometimes we look and we say, well, well, they prayed for Peter and Peter got out. What was wrong with James? Did they not pray for him? Uh, were their prayers not effective? And, and sometimes this is how we feel in our life. We see some Christians and things are going well for them and things are not going well for us. Maybe we have a rough spot at our job. People are, are, are making fun of us because we're Christians. We're having trouble with our family. Maybe there's illness. Uh, maybe there's some kind of hardship. We just lost a job. Whatever it is, we sometimes look and we go, God is blessing them, but he's not blessing me. And you need to know that all of these things are in the plan and purpose of God. And God has different plans for each of his disciples. So when Jesus gathers the disciples uh, before he ascends into heaven in in the book of John, he, he says this to Peter, Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and will dr- another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following with them, the one who had leaned back uh, against him during the, the supper. And he said, Lord Who is it that is going to betray you? That's what this disciple had said during the supper. Uh, When he saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So picture this in your mind. Here is Peter, and we're pretty sure that he's talking about John, the brother of James, James being the one who has just died in Acts. He looks at John, the disciple, and Jesus has said, you're going to die, and when you're getting old, people are going to carry you where you don't want to go, and you're going to suffer for my name. And, and Peter says, well, Jesus, what about John? I, I think it's sort of a, well, if I'm going to suffer, please tell me he's going to suffer too. Uh, please tell me we're all going to be in the, in the same boat. Uh, none of us like to go through things alone. Uh, it's very difficult when we're going through a hard time to be joyous for people that are having their own joys because we're like, well, if they only had to go through what I have to go through. And this is sort of, I think, what's in Peter's mind. And Jesus says to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then John, writing the book of John, adds this commentary. He says, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. He said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? It's a, it's a nice way of saying, Peter, it's none of your business. You follow me. 
You worry about being obedient to me. I think you can make a very similar parallel to Peter and James. James being John's brother. It was Jesus' will. It was God's will that James would die very early in the life of the church. Peter probably lived into the, the, uh, at least past 70 A.D., probably into the 80s, uh, maybe the 90s, depending on when he was uh, killed. Maybe it's not quite that far, but John, we think, lived uh, until about 100 A.D. or so and met uh, some of the other people that as the church spread throughout the world. The point being, our mission, our job is to follow God and trust in his plans. So trust God when hardship and trials come. Our mission is to follow the Lord. And the reason I'm bringing this out is don't start thinking that, that Peter is somehow more righteous than James. Or James must have done something wrong that God would take his life away so early. Or, or people prayed more or harder for Peter uh, than they prayed for James. Now the Scriptures doesn't tell us that they prayed for James. It could have happened so fast they didn't even have time to to organize a prayer meeting. But I'm sure the church had the same love and care and compassion and prayers for James at some point that they had for Peter. And so don't think, well, the prayers were ineffective in one case and effective in another, so they must have been praying with a lack of faith. We don't always know God's plans, but we have to trust that God does what is right. God's plans aren't Thwarted. He did not love James less than he loved Peter. And you and I need to know that. You and I need to recognize that. Yes, there are times in the Christian life where the Lord does bring discipline for sins that we do. But there are also many, many times where the Lord brings hardship and it's part of his plan and we just don't know why. We have to trust him. A perfect example would be of Job. Our job is is to follow. To follow. Second, this morning, God's plans include uh, deliverance and answers to prayer. So the church is earnestly praying for Peter. Look at verse 5. So while Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayers for him was made to God by the church. Peter is is locked up tight. Look at verse 6. But when Herod uh, was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, uh, and sentries uh, before the door were guarding the prison. Uh, He is is between two soldiers. And and these would not have been um, weak, wimpy men. I don't know how big these chains were, but you can guarantee they were solid. You can guarantee there was no way, humanly speaking, that he was going to get out of these things. The doors to the prison were locked. There were guards, uh, at least two of them, in the hallways. Peter, though, is rescued by an angel. Uh, I love this. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter in the side. I I wonder if he kicked him, you know, get out of bed, Peter, wake up. Or if he he hit him with his hand, I I don't know. But Peter was sound asleep. Um, I am a sound sleeper. I can identify with Peter here. Uh, You need to really shake me to wake me up in the middle of the night. And you can imagine why... Peter thinks it's a vision that he's seeing. 
he's probably still half asleep. You know how when you wake up and you're, you're groggy and you're walking out and, and, and if you've ever had to do something in the middle of the night and you go back to sleep, you wake up in the morning and you go, did I really do that or was, or was that a dream? And did I, did I really have to wake up to, to help my daughter or did I just dream all that because we're groggy? This is what Peter is, is going through. So the angel said, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hand. The angel said, dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. This is like saying, Peter, get your coat, get your jacket, we're heading out. And he went out and he followed him, and he did not realize, know what was being done by the, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. And he thought he was seeing a vision. Um, and it says, as he passed the first and the second guard, these would be the two guards in the hallways, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and it went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. What I want you to notice here is that this is God sending the angel. This is divine intervention. These, these chains just fall off. And, and the angel is leading Peter out the, the gate, out towards the door, and and the door, the, this big iron gate just opens on its own. Now, in our prisons today, you know, we have our doors on electronic things and somebody pushes a button. We have a handicapped door here. The door can open on its own when you push the button. But this is an old-fashioned iron gate. And, and can you imagine just you're walking along and this thing is, this thing is locked tight. It is, it is not like it's just blowing a little bit in the wind and a, a wind sweeps through and it opens. They, they are walking and, and, and it's just the door opens. The angel has the ability, given by the power of God, to just take all of this stuff and it becomes useless, pointless, no power or ability to hold Peter, and they walk right out. One thing I noticed as I studied this this week that I, I've never really noticed before, I always assumed that the guards fell asleep. I always assumed that they were sleeping too. But the passage only tells us that Peter was asleep. We don't know what happened to the guards. Maybe they did fall asleep. Maybe the Lord allowed them to fall into a deep sleep so they wouldn't be disturbed. That happens many times in scriptures. But these were guards. These were guys that, that were not used to falling asleep on their duty station. And, and there were four of them. And, and if one fell asleep, I'm sure the others would have kicked the other one and said, you know what happens if we fall asleep on this guard duty. I mean, if you're in the military and you fall asleep on the guard duty, it is a major offense. It is a big deal, especially in a time of war. It can go so far as they can put you to death for doing that. It is, it is like one of the highest uh, crime, military crimes uh, in those situations. It very well could have been that the angel just somehow kept the guards from seeing what happened. I don't know exactly, and Scripture doesn't tell us, but what I want you to see is there is so much of the power of God being worked through this angel. It is God's plan that is being carried out. This is not an accident. This is the plan and purpose of God to deliver Peter. So Peter acknowledges this. 
Acts chapter 12, verse 11. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me for the hand, from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. It, it's hand of Herod, the power, the, the might of Herod as being undone by this angel of the Lord. And some have noticed there's some similarities here to, to uh, the first Passover. Remember how God, through his mighty hand, takes uh, the Israelites out of Egypt? When Moses gets and meets his father-in-law Jethro, uh, Jethro says, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh. Pharaoh and Herod had the same type of mighty inflated ego. Pharaohs thought they were gods, thought they were the son of Ra, thought they had all this power and strength and this mighty hand. Herod, in the next section, is going to think that he is a god, that he is mighty, that he is powerful. The hand of God is more powerful than any human being. A human being cannot thwart the plans and purposes of God. And when God allows a human being to do something, he even goes so far as to restrain evil. Wicked men would do far worse than they do even today if God did not restrain evil. We don't know why God allows certain things to happen, tragedies, horrific things. But we do know this. One, God has not let the universe out of his control. And two, if human beings got to do all the wickedness that they wanted to, the world would be even worse than it is today. The hand of God is more powerful than the hand of Herod, than the hand of Pharaoh, than the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, than the hands of presidents and governments and people today. And we need to believe that. That God delivers us. So then Peter, being delivered, he goes to the house of Mary. This is the mother of John Mark. Uh, and they are all praying there. And so he, he knocks on the door. In verse 13, it says he knocks and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And, and this gets fun as well. You just, you just think, I don't know how old Rhoda was, but I kind of, in my mind, imagine her to be a, a young uh, teenager. Uh, just because it strikes me as the way a teenager would act if they get all excited. You know, she, she goes to the door and she hears, she hears Peter's voice. And, and uh, if you've ever had little kids, sometimes my girls do this. Somebody rings the doorbell and they run to see who it is. And then they run back to tell you, but they never open the door. Uh, they, and they're just so excited. You know, oh, it's grandma. Or, oh, it's so-and-so who was coming. Uh, this is what Rhoda does. Uh, she goes to answer the gate. And, and it says in verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy... She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. And then it says, but she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's an angel or it's his angel, meaning, you know, we might say it's his ghost. It's, it's just a, an appearance. He must have been put to death already. And we're seeing a last appearance of him before he goes uh, to heaven. What's, what's fascinating, what's, what's kind of funny, I think, is 
She's there arguing with him, with them. Peter's at the door and they're saying, no, you're just making this up. You must have heard wrong. No, it must be his angel. And she keeps insisting when when she starts arguing with them and insisting this, when all she would have to do is go and open the door and she could show them, hey, it, it really is Peter. So at some point, uh, Peter keeps on knocking. And at some point, somebody else finally, oh, wow, there is somebody knocking at the door. And it says, um, but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. I, the, the, the sneaky part of me just wonders if Rhoda went, see I told you so. If I would have been there, I would have been. See, I told you so. It really is Peter. And and so there's this commotion. Um, Everybody just starts talking. And oh, my gosh, how did this happen? What happened to you? It's like it it would be like being in a crowded room where everybody is trying to speak uh, to one person. Uh, If you all right now at this moment try to to have a conversation, an individual conversation with me and we were all talking at once, uh, it wouldn't happen. I wouldn't be able to understand it. So it says, uh, but motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them that the Lord had brought him out of prison. And then he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. This is obviously not the James that has died. Uh, this is James, the brother of Jesus, James, the one who writes the book of James. There were a lot of Marys. There were a lot of Jameses uh, in, in the early church. And there were a few Johns, which is actually, interestingly, pretty close to how we think it was in the ancient world. Uh, Mary and, and James and some of these names were very common uh, and often repeated. So we go through this and we, we see what happens. But I want you to notice that God is faithful to watch over us. And he actually does answer prayer. You see, the plan and purposes of God, uh, he uses prayer. He delights in, in his children bringing requests before him. So while we do not know the plan of God, the Lord delights in answering prayers. Now, I've already mentioned, don't assume that it was a lack of prayer or a lack of faith that got James killed. But at the same time, notice how God has answered their prayers here. Notice how God delights in in giving good gifts to his children. Matthew chapter 7 says this. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? We're to pray in our prayer requests according to. To the will of God. So it is still the sovereign will of God that determines what will happen. And when we pray to God, we need to say, if it is your will, Lord. But God delights in using our prayers as part of his plan and then answering our prayers according to his will to show his goodness. First John 517 says this. And this is the confidence we have towards him, that we if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's like Jesus prayed in the garden. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The proper motive for prayer, the proper position for prayer is is one of humility that we bring these things before God and we ask for them, but we ask as one who knows our position. We are not God. We don't get to dictate terms to Him. 
And so we pray, Lord, if it's your will, allow this to happen. And many times it is his will. Lord, if it's your will, allow me to get this job. Lord, if it's your will, allow this to happen. And other times it's not his will. And his will is something else. But we have to trust that God knows what is best. Don't be surprised then when God answers prayer. It says in verse 16, when they saw him, they were amazed. It's possible they didn't expect Peter to be delivered. Maybe they weren't specifically praying for deliverance. Maybe they were praying that Peter would be faithful unto death. I I don't know the exact nature. But I know sometimes in my life, I'll pray for something and I'll, I'll throw in at the end of the prayer, Lord, if it's your will... And, and I pray and I say that because I'm that moment, I'm a pessimist. I say, I don't really know if God is going to do this, but I just don't want to be disappointed when he doesn't. So I'll say, if it's your will. And then he does it. And I go, wow, you really did answer that prayer. Sometimes it was a big thing. Sometimes it was a, a small, minor thing. And it amazes me because God cares for me as a parent, cares for the child. And, and we should be praying according to his will, but we also shouldn't think that that doesn't mean that God likes answering prayers. He delights in giving good gifts to his children. Finally, believe in the supremacy and the power of God. When you pray, you are praying to the one who has the ability to do these things. God is sovereign over all things in the world. In the Old Testament, he stopped the sun and caused it to move backwards down so the shadow fell a different way on the steps. He paused the sun while Israel was fighting a battle. God can do all things. And so believe when you pray that you are asking the one who has the power to do things. God alone here acts to deliver Peter. And God did not need prayer to motivate him, but he delights when his children pray. Think of an illustration in your own life. If you have children or you have nieces and nephews or grandchildren, your kids don't need to ask you for things. You're going to provide for them. You're going to put food on the table. They don't have to ask, gee, mom, would you make dinner tonight? Because if I don't ask mom to make dinner, she's not going to make dinner tonight. You know how to take care of your kids. You know that they need uh, to eat. But you also delight when they ask for things, when they express appreciation. You know, Dad, I'm so glad you worked so hard to put food on the table. It's not like if they hadn't said that, you weren't going to do it. And, And in the same way, God has his plans and God has his sovereign will and he will accomplish his ends. But he delights when we ask for these things. It it changes our heart. It changes our motives. It, It allows us to acknowledge who really is in control. And he really delights in answering prayers and giving you good gifts that you ask for. If, of course, it's according to his will. But just because he has his sovereign will doesn't mean he doesn't delight in hearing prayers. The plans and purposes of God, his absolute sovereignty over all things, includes a delight in using your prayers. 
It's the same thing with evangelism. God has a plan and purpose to save people from all over the world, but he delights in using you and I as evangelists because that is the means that he uses to take the gospel out. Prayer is the means that he uses to shape his children as he brings them gifts according to his will. Finally, I want you to notice very quickly how God frustrates the plans of the wicked. This is sometime later. Uh, Herod gets himself into trouble. We should notice that that Herod kills the guards. Uh, I kind of feel a little sad for the guards here. Uh, it, it wasn't their fault. Um, I don't know if that's the right feeling to feel or not, uh, but it is. Uh, it is what it is. The guards are, are put to death because Herod can't find uh, Peter. Then we notice that Herod then accepts worship and blasphemy. Herod was angry with the people of Tyre, and they came to him in one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and they asked for peace because of their country, uh, depended on their king, uh, on the king's country for food. And on the appointed day, Herod put on royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not a man. Uh, We have this recorded. This is the works of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish writer that wrote after the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And so he writes a history of the Jewish people. And listen to what he writes. This isn't scripture, but I want you to know that this really happened. Now, when Agrippa had reigned uh, three years over Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower. And he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar. And upon being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety, at which festival a great multitude had gotten together, uh, the principal persons and uh, as such were of dignity through his province. On the second day, uh, which shows uh, on the second day, which shows he put on a garment made wholly of silver and the contexture, the texture was truly wonderful. And he came into the theater early in the morning. So picture this in your minds this bright silver robe and he is coming in and the sun is is low in the sky. And it says, at which time the silver on his garment being illuminated by a fresh reflection of the sun that shone upon it after a surprising manner. It was so resplendent as to spread such horror over those who intently looked upon it. Presently, his flatterers cried out from one place and one another from one another, um, though not for his good, that he is a God. And they added, be thou merciful to us, for although we hitherto reverenced you as a man, we shall henceforth own you as superior to mortal nature. Upon this, the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. And as he presently afterwards looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a rope above his head and immediately understood that the bird was a messenger of ill and it had upon it the messenger. For once it had been the messenger of good tidings to him. He fell into deep sorrow and severe pain arose in his belly and and began in a most violent manner. And Josephus goes on and describes his death. He's a God. And he doesn't say, no, no, I'm not. This is the arrogance of Herod. This is the arrogance that assumed that he could kill James and get away with it. And that he could kill Peter and stop the early church. 
God's plans are not thwarted. A little later on in the book of Acts, uh, Paul and Barnabas are, are in a city in Poseidon, and people they're preaching, and people say to them, you guys are gods. Amazing, the miracles you can do. And, and Saul, uh, Paul and Barnabas run into the town square, and they start tearing their robes and weeping and crying because they don't want to be they don't want blasphemy and worship. But Herod, in his pride, in his arrogance, says, Yeah, isn't this nice? Isn't this great what people think of me? I really am a somebody. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's James 4, chapter 6. It's interesting, there are several other times in Scripture where various kings proclaim to be gods. One is in the book of Ezekiel. The prince of Tyre says this. And it says in in Ezekiel chapter 28, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seats of God in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like a God. Therefore, says the Lord God, because you made your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of nations. And then skipping down a few verses, it says, will you still say I am a God in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you? In other words, God will have his way. Sometimes we might not say, I'm a God. Sometimes we think that God owes us an explanation. That we should be able to say to God, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this way? I don't like it and you need to listen to me. God's plans are not bound by the plans of man. God's plans are his own, and he will accomplish his purpose. The question for you is, are you going to be a humble believer who follows the Lord, who submits to him, who rightly asks for things in prayer, but asks with a right attitude? Or are you going to be on the other side, which in effect is no better than Herod saying, I'm a God. When we think that we can make demands of God, when we think that God needs to speak to us, that we are on his level, we make ourselves God's equal in our hearts. And that's idolatry. God delights in showing his will and carrying it forward in doing what's best for his plans in a way that has our best interests in mind. But God is God, and we are not. And we need to believe and trust that God is sovereign in every area of our lives. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, We ask this morning that you would speak to us from the book of Acts. Uh, We don't know why you allowed James to die and why you rescued Peter. But we see your sovereign hand through this whole series of events. 
And then even, Lord, in judging Herod, you show us that one day you will judge all wickedness, that all who stand opposed to you will be judged. Lord, let us be a people who delight in submitting to you. Maybe there's something going on in our lives that we are having trouble trusting you with, that we are having trouble acknowledging the truth that you are in control that you do all things right and well, even when in the short term it doesn't look that way to us. But you have your eternal purposes and you will bring glory to your name and you will glorify us with the Lord Jesus Christ. Your plans are wonderful and you work all things to the glory of those who love you according to your purposes. We praise you for that. We praise you for that. As a church, I pray that we would be a people that are just committed to your sovereign reign in every area of our life and over all things that are happening in your world. It all belongs to you, and we have the privilege, Lord, of being called to follow you. Bless us now, and as we sing this closing hymn, Lord, may it just be with a worshipful spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.